Amen. Go ahead and remain standing. All right, and let's turn to the book of 1 John, 1 John. Boy, that's a song tonight. You really have to sing by faith, isn't it? There's sunshine. Um, yeah. <laughs> let's uh, look at 1 John tonight. 1 John and chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Book of 1 John chapter 3. And we're going to begin reading in verse number 16. So we're going to read three verses tonight. 1 John chapter 3. Verses 16, 17, and 18. Verse number 16 of 1 John chapter 3 says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord God, as we look at the greatest example of love, the example that you set for us, Lord, I pray that you would just help us, Lord, to achieve what you would have us to achieve. Lord, we know that you want us to love as you love. We, want, we know you want us to forgive as you forgive. And Lord God, those are very high expectations, and we often fall very short. But Lord, I pray that you would just help us as we do fail to get back up, and Lord, to trust in you and to rely in you, and know, Lord God, that this is your will for us. We thank you now, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Beginning in verse 10 of chapter 3, John begins challenging believers concerning their love for one another. Verse number 10 starts out by saying, In this the children of God are made manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. And so from that point until these, these three verses that we have just read... Uh, John begins to teach the importance of loving your brother. Perhaps like Paul's experience with the church in Corinth, John had visited churches in which the members were bickering, and John had seen too much of the same thing over and over and over again. We know that this is covered many times throughout the New Testament by men who were preachers and by men who were missionaries. As, as a matter of fact, James talks about this. James, of course, being the pastor of that church there in Jerusalem. And in James in chapter 2, verse number 1, James says this, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Well, that means we pick and choose who we love, and we pick and choose who we demonstrate our love for. And James says that we're not supposed to do that any more than God does that. And thankfully, God doesn't do that. God loved the world, the Bible tells us, and that he gave his son for the world. Also in James chapter 4 and in verse number 1, James writes, From whence come wars? And fightings among you. You know, we always have a reason. We always have an excuse for fighting with the brother or being at odds with the brother. And we always think we're justified in it. But James says, bottom line, this is where wars and fightings come among you. Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Our lusts and our pride, we can always boil it down to those things. And also in James chapter 4 and in verse number 11. James chapter 4, verse number 11. Speak, no, speak not evil one of another. And again, we can always justify speaking bad of someone. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But... If thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. I don't think anyone, any one of us want to stand before God 
as one who judges the law, because the law of the Lord is perfect. And who are we to judge the law? Now, because of John's experience with bickering brethren and James' experience with bickering brethren and Paul's experience with bickering brothers, uh, they write about these things. And John writes about them here. He elaborates on brotherly love by saying that, and we dealt with this over the last several weeks, number one, the lack of love is the manifestation of the devil's children. We read that in verse number 10. He said that love is the message of God's word, and we are to practice that in verse number 11. Love is an attribute of that, uh, of that which is spiritual. Verse number 12, and the Bible says we are to walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. Love is an attribute of the spiritual, and, and love for the brethren is necessitated by the world's hatred of the brethren. We're not going to get love out in the world. We need to be able to come to a place of refuge where we can feel loved, where we can be loved, and where we can demonstrate that love one to another. Also, love for the brethren, according to verse number 14, is evidence of one's salvation. Verse number 14, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. Here's evidence that you passed from death into life, that you've gone from being a lost person to a saved person, from a non-Christian to a Christian, from one who does not know Christ to one who does know Christ and is living for Christ. It's evidence. Not only that, but verse number 15 tells us that to not love a brother is likened unto murder. And so though John doesn't abandon this subject in this epistle, he concludes this particular segment with the following points about brotherly love. And quickly, I'm just going to give you three this evening, three points about brotherly love. You know, there are some things, uh, some topics that you preach on that I feel are easier to preach on than other topics. And to me, this is one of those topics. Uh, this church demonstrates over and over brotherly love. But I don't, think we, uh, I don't think we're ever good enough at it. We should always be trying to improve. And we should always also be, uh, be well, just uh, be aware of the fact that just as we can become backslidden, we can lose this part of our Christian walk also. So brotherly love, verse number 16, I want you to notice, first of all, John gives us an observation he gives us this observation. Verse number 16, the first part. He says, Hereby perceive we, or observe we, or see we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. So the observation leads us to the fact that God set the example. You want to see brotherly love? Well, Jesus showed it to us. Jesus demonstrated it to us. And anything short of what Jesus did is not brotherly love at all. Well, this is how we know God loves us. Not because he says it, but because he does it. Because he did it. He showed it. He demonstrated it. And he shows it to us each and every day. Aren't you glad you have a God who doesn't simply say, I love you. He demonstrates his love for us. And then he says, I love you. By the way, that's the, that's the correct order right there. You don't say it and then set out to prove it. You prove it, and then it becomes obvious when you say it. And that's why the Word of God says we're not to love in word. We can't love in tongue. That's not really love. Saying I love you is not really love. Demonstrating love, that's true love. And then saying it is just the icing on the cake. So this is how we know God loves us. Not because he says he loves us, but because he, he showed us. This is how we perceive the love of God. Not because he told us, even though God cannot lie, and that, that really would be enough. But thankfully, God set a higher standard than that. God did not say, I'm just going to tell you I love you and leave it at that. He demonstrated it. He showed us. 
in all our observation, there can be no doubt, there can be no denial as to the love of God for us. He laid down his life for us. He, he took our place on the cross. He went through the worst part of hell, which is separation from God the Father for us. He did that because he loved us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He laid down his life. John 15, verse number 13 says this, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You know, at the time, the apostles, there's no way they could have understood that. What is Jesus talking about? Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And then they watched Jesus die, and they watched what Jesus went through. And, of course, they didn't understand it at that time either, wondering what in the world is going on. This man claimed to be our Messiah, and now he's up there on the cross, and he's not coming down. What is going on here? And then, of course, Jesus was buried, and they fretted for three days, the Bible says, until Jesus showed himself to them after the resurrection. You know, I'm not exactly sure when it clicked, but obviously it clicked at, at some point, and the apostles realized that was love. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus displayed it. He didn't just say it. He didn't just teach it. He practiced it. He showed it to us. He demonstrated it to us. Oh, and by the way, to prove their love for him, guess what they did? Every single one of the apostles laid down their life for their Savior. You know, it's interesting because Jesus had asked on numerous occasions if they'd be willing to do that. Why, at one point, Jesus asked the sons of Zebedee, are you willing to uh, drink of the cup that, that, that I will drink of and, or, 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 or go through the baptism that I'm going to go through? And, of course, they said yes. And Jesus says, well, eventually you will. But you're not ready right now. Of course, Peter told Jesus, I, I'll, I'll not forsake you. I would die for you. Well, eventually that would be true. But at that point, Peter did not love Jesus enough yet to do it. Boy, what pushed them over, uh, what pushed them over to the other side? Well, I believe seeing the love that Jesus had for them. And every single one of them laid down their life for their friend for their Savior, for their God, for their King. They were, they were unshakable in their faith because they believed in the love that they had witnessed. Hereby perceive we the love of God. You know, as Caiaphas said, what further need have we of witnesses? as he tried Jesus and as he questioned Jesus. And, and, of course, the accusation was Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. And as, uh, uh, as uh, uh, question after question after question, finally Caiaphas rent his clothes and said, What further need have we of witnesses? Well, the verdict is simple with true and honest perception. God's guilty. He's guilty of love. Hereby perceive we the love of God. You know, the observation also leads us to the conclusion that God doesn't ask us to do anything he hasn't already done in relation to brotherly love. When you study brotherly love in the New Testament, it is a hard, it's a hard doctrine to live up to. Man, we've got, to, we've got to love one another. We need to be willing to lay down our lives for one another. We've got to be willing to sacrifice for one another. We have got to be, we've got to pray that, uh, that our brother will actually do better than we do. I mean, I mean, all these things, we have to forgive. We've got to forbear. We've got to endure one another. It's one of the hardest doctrines to live up to. Yet... Jesus did it. Every aspect of brotherly love, 
Jesus was forsaken by brothers. He forgave brothers. Jesus was hurt by brothers. Yet he, uh, uh, he saved brothers. Jesus was grieved by brothers. And yet he accepted these brothers. It'll, it, it'll be one of the hardest things that you'll put into practice as far as New Testament teachings. And yet it's one of the most vital. Because hereby perceive we the love of God. When God says, I expect you to love your brother. Well, Lord, what are you, what are you talking about? Well, you saw what I did in the flesh. That's my expectation for you. Can I say that that would eliminate all, all problems in the church? It would eliminate all rivalries in the church. It would eliminate all pride in the church. That's how difficult it is to live up to this standard. In Matthew chapter 18, the Bible says that Peter came to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? And Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Well, Peter had taken the standard and then doubled it and then added one. And it wasn't enough because Jesus' standard is so much higher than man's standard. An infinite number of times. Well, you can just imagine what Peter's jaw looked like when Jesus said, no, that's not enough. As a matter of fact, an infinite number of times is how many times you need to forgive a brother. In Luke chapter 17 and in verse number 3, Jesus says, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. By the way, that's, that's loving in truth. We're going to talk about that. Loving in truth does not mean tolerance and acceptance of every lifestyle and of every sin. Open rebuke is better than secret love, the Bible says. If a brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. If he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive. Some would say, well, I don't think he's really uh, repentant at that point. Uh, that's not for you to judge. Let the judge be the judge. And we are to just live according to the law. God forgives unconditionally, lest we all be unforgiven every day. You know, God didn't hold a grudge against Paul for consenting to the death of Stephen, one of his greatest servants, a servant that stood up for him, uh, a servant that uh, stood alone for him. Paul consented unto his death, but, you know, God didn't hold that against him. Not to mention the havoc Paul wreaked on the church or the churches as a whole. In Acts chapter 9, we read that Saul yet breathing out threatenings, or Paul, and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any in this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. When Paul, however, met Jesus on the road to Damascus, Jesus saved him. Jesus forgave him. God didn't hold a grudge against me for sending him to the cross. And I was guilty of sending him to the cross. Every single one of us here, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that is why Jesus went to the cross, because my sin sent him there. I'm thankful God doesn't hold a grudge because when we consider the times we justify it, he certainly would be justified in holding a grudge. But he didn't. It definitely doesn't take real keen observation to see that God loves the brethren. Hereby perceive we the love of God because they lay down his life for us. And as Jesus taught us, um, 
Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So it's a pretty easy observation, but now let's look at the expectation. This is much harder. As you look at the second part of verse number 16, 1 John chapter 4, verse number 16, the second part of that from the observation, yes, God loves us. He laid down his life for us. By the way, uh, there's another great, great verse proving the deity of Jesus Christ right there. Who laid down his life for us? God laid down his life for us. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. Now, next to, to, uh, I'm sorry, that second part of that verse. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. There's the expectation right there. The observation, well, that's pretty easy. That was God. The expectation, now it gets pretty difficult because God set the example and now he expects us to follow it to the T. He laid down his life for us. He set the example. He doesn't say come or or go. Our, Our God says come, follow me. Remember that game we used to play as a kid called follow the leader. And you didn't just go where the leader went. You had to do exactly what the leader did. You had to do do it exactly the way that he did it. And if you didn't, you were out of the game. We don't want to be out of the game. And so we follow the leader. Jesus doesn't say, go, do this. The worst supervisors in the world are the ones who simply point. Do this. Do that. Do that. The best ones are the ones that get down and get their hands dirty with you. They work with you. Uh, They're showing you how to do it. They're setting the example. And here is our God, not pointing, saying, do this and do that. He's saying, let's, we're co-laborers, the Bible says, together. And so he sets the example and then says, now, that's the expectation Laying down your life is an inconvenience. I guess that's just, that is uh, saying it lightly. Therefore, true brotherly love means inconveniencing yourself for others. It doesn't simply mean it's more than going out of your way. It's being completely inconvenienced. This was ultimately practiced by the church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 4, we read about that church in Jerusalem, how they practiced brotherly love. Acts 4.34 says, Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which being interpreted as son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now we saw a little bit of of that Sunday. I mean, literally, people sacrificing to give to the Glencoe Project and sacrificing to give to the building fund. You know, uh, some people actually have have altered their lifestyles so that they can give for the needs of the church. And, you know, if you've done it long enough, you realize this, you really don't give because you can't outgive God. There's not a whole lot of sacrificing. I mean, initially we sacrifice and then God blesses beyond measure. But God does bless the initial sacrifice. Acts 12, 12, the Bible tells us, and and, uh, when he had uh, considered uh, the things, he came to the house of, well, actually, let's just back up a little bit. You know, when Peter was in jail, the entire church was inconvenienced. The entire church was hurt. And, and, uh, of course, uh, they had reason to fret Because Herod had just killed James, the brother of John, and he realized that, man, that pleased the Jews. And so let's do the same thing to Peter. 
So Peter was arrested and he was in jail for the weekend. After the weekend, he was going to be executed. So what did the church do? The church prayed. In Acts chapter 12, verse number 5, the Bible says, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing. That means the entire time that Peter was in jail, the church prayed. Prayed without ceasing was made of the church unto God for him. And I want you to understand that this just wasn't just people being at home and praying. Now, they were having prayer meetings. In other words, people were coming together in homes, and they were praying for Peter. Uh, they were sacrificing their weekend. Whatever their plans had been, they changed those plans so that they could all come together so that without ceasing, they knew when Peter was going to be executed. It was going to be after the weekend. So that weekend was given to praying and they came together and how do we know this because when the angel came and freed peter the bible tells us that he went to the house of mary which was john mark's mom and he knocked on the gate because everyone was inside having a prayer meeting Acts chapter 12, verse number 12 says, And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. You know, in this day and age when it's hard to get people to put things aside because we're so busy, it would do us well to remember the things that made that first church so successful brotherly love casting things aside being inconvenienced laying down our lives for the brothers brotherly love doesn't mean inconveniencing yourself only for those who who like you or only those for those who you like you know there's some that'll pick and choose but james says we're not to be a respecter of persons there's some people that'll go out of their way for their immediate family, but no one else. Some people that'll go out of their way for certain causes, but if this isn't the cause that, that I am particularly interested in, then, then, then I'm not going to do it. And then you have those individuals, they'll go out of their way for anyone in the church. Men, anyone who has need and anyone who, who I can help, anyone who I can be a blessing to, and they don't pick and choose. Brotherly love doesn't mean inconveniencing yourself only for those that you pick and choose to inconvenience your, yourself for. Matthew 5, 46 says, For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Well, I don't know why I should help him. He wouldn't, he wouldn't do anything for me. I don't know why I would help him. I, you know, I've been going to church with him for 10 years, and, and not one time has he ever come up and said hi to me. I always got to go and say hi to him. The Bible says, what, what reward have you if you only do it for those who love you? Those who will go out of their way. And by the way, we all ought to go out of our way to greet one another at church. We all ought to leave our comfort zone. We all ought to leave our chairs if possible. And, and I know with, with some it's, it's harder than it is for others. But we all, because quite frankly, it is easier to demonstrate brotherly love to people who also demonstrate it to you. That's just the, the that is just the, uh, Law of sowing and reaping. You know, there's some times where we need to help someone and, and it, it, it's hard to get people to do it. Sometimes because they're not faithful and no one knows who they are. You know, it's beneficial to be faithful to your church. It's beneficial to be there every time the doors are open. Then people know you. People know who you are. It's also beneficial to be friendly because a man who has friends must show himself friendly. 
And quit using the excuse, well, that's just not me. That's just not my personality. That's a biblical mandate. If you're going to have friends, show yourself friendly. If not, then the pastor's going to have to beg people to help you when you need help. Well, I'll never need help. Oh, man, tomorrow you will, I guarantee you. But on the, on the flip side, you don't pick and choose who you love. If you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? Being like the rest of the world. That's what the world does. As a matter of fact, do we not see that in politics? My goodness. All you got to do is look at the impeachment. Who hates Trump? Those who voted for it. Who loves Trump? Those who voted against it. I mean, the Constitution has nothing to do with, what they, with how they operate anymore. It's we hate this guy, let's get rid of him. We love this guy, let's fight for him. It has nothing to do with right or wrong anymore. Brotherly love doesn't mean being like the world. It means rising above the world. And you know, there's an individual who won't even give me the time of day at church. But now it's an individual who needs help. And God forbid that I be like the world and not help this person, not love this person. Listen, Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 2 says, With all lowliness and meekness. That's how we are to love one another. We are to be, I'm to be the lowly one, the meek one. With all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring. By the way, you know what it means to endeavor? That means it's work. <laughs> it doesn't always come naturally to love people. There are some people who make it very hard to love them. We have to endeavor to love them. And there are some people who have an excuse for everything. We've got to endeavor to love them. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Also, that same chapter of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 32. Be ye kind one to another. Not just those who are kind to you. Like I said, I get it. There are some people who make it very hard to be kind to. The Bible doesn't say be kind to the kind. It says be kind one to another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. God understands that when you put people together, there will be differences There's going to be some infighting at times. There's going to be differences of opinions. But we are to be tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. There's that example once again. Why should I do this? Well, because God does it for you. That's why. Colossians 3, 13, another great example Kind of says the same thing, Colossians 3.13. Forbearing one another. Forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Remember the lesson Jesus taught us, that if we don't forgive, our prayers don't even get answered. Because in order for our prayers to get answered, we have to receive forgiveness We're not receiving any forgiveness if we don't forgive. Brotherly love doesn't mean just picking and choosing. Well, that's family. I'm going to help that cause. Well, that's a person who who has been good to me over the years. I'm going to help that cause. That's not how it's done. That's not meekness. That's not lowliness of mind. That's what the publicans do, God says. That's what the world does. That's what the sinners do. 
Brotherly love is also hoping your brother fares better than you and helping him do so. Boy, that's a hard one. Sometimes you watch as you struggle and someone else in the church gets the blessing that you've been praying for. You know how God says we are to react? This is how we often react. Lord, why not me? But we're supposed to react with, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Romans 12.10 says, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. In honor, preferring one another. That means hoping the best for others. You know, I liken it to this. As parents, we all want our kids to do better than we did. I mean, that's just, that's natural affection. That's natural love. Now I know that there are some, that's not the case. But for the most part, if you're a parent, you know this. If you played a sport and your kid plays that sport, you want them to uh, attain levels in that sport that you weren't able to attain. Uh, If you have an occupation and your kid chooses that same occupation, you glory when they excel in that occupation and that they do things that you yourself could not do. I was reading here just uh, not too long ago uh, um, uh, something that Archie Manning wrote. Now, if you don't know who Archie Manning was, Archie Manning was, uh, he was a football player. As a matter of fact, he played for a team that was so bad that the uh, fans would come into the stadium with brown bags over their face because they were embarrassed to be fans of that team. This was when I was a kid. They were the New Orleans Saints, and they nicknamed them the Aints. They would... I mean, they would lose up to 11 games in a season. Well, Archie Manning just so happens that his kids played football. Two of his kids played pro football. Two of his kids did something that he never got to do, and that was have winning seasons. Not only did they get to have winning seasons, both of his kids, each of his kids won two Super Bowls apiece. And some might think, well, uh, that might make him jealous. But if you, well, if he means what he writes, he was thrilled that his kids got to experience something he never got to. And given the choice, he'd rather his kids won Super Bowls than he himself won Super Bowls. I want to tell you something. That's a dad because that's exactly how a dad would feel. That's how parents feel. You know that we're supposed to feel that about one another. That's what it means. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another. Man, I want to help you succeed. The expectation is also of being your brother's keeper. Let's look at our our scripture once again. 1 John. So there's the expectation of sacrificial love. That's the end of verse number 16. 1 John 3, 16. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's sacrificial love. Verse number 17 is the expectation of being your brother's keeper. Verse 17 says, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother hath need. Okay. Now, let's just... Stop right there for a second. He's not seeing his brother be lazy. He's not seeing his brother make dumb decision after dumb decision after dumb decision. He's not seeing a brother quit jobs just because he doesn't like them. No, this is a brother who has need, okay? So there's a difference between a brother who's lazy and won't do anything, and a brother who has need. As a matter of fact, the Bible says if man won't work, neither should he eat. And so there's a biblical principle here. We're not talking about people who choose not to better themselves. He's talking about people 
who have needs. Maybe some people have been laid off. Maybe people who got injured. I remember several years ago, we had someone in the church who had got injured on the job, uh, terribly injured and couldn't go back to work. And so as a church, we took up an offering for them. Um, that's, that's what we're supposed to do. It wasn't an individual who just decided one day, I hate this job, and he quit it, and now he's struggling. There's a difference. This is a brother who has need. So whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need, and that word need ought to be underlined. There's a difference between a need and a want and consequences. But if we see a brother who has need and shut up our bowels of compassion from him, then John asked this rhetorical question. How dwelleth the love of God in him? And by the way, we were lost because of bad decisions. And God was merciful to us. Helping your brother in need when you have the resources, it's not an optional favor. It's a requirement. We shouldn't even have to think about it. Man, here's someone who has need. I've got the resources. I need to help this person. I have a biblical mandate to help this person. To answer Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper? The answer, yes, we are our brother's keeper. A brother who possesses Christ should not fail to meet the needs of others. And this is evidence that Christ is in a person. And so we looked first of all at the observation. Not a keen observation. Not a brilliant observation. God loves us. It's pretty easy to see. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. Then the expectation, sacrificial love, and being your brother's keeper. Now, last of all, and real quickly, he gives us this explanation. Love indeed. Verse number 18. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Deed means putting your actions where your words are. As a matter of fact, chances are you'll never have to tell someone you love them if you show them you love them because actions speak louder than words. Now, that's not to excuse you for not saying it. You ought to. But it's just, it's just the icing on the cake. Love indeed. Matthew 5, 8 says, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Well, how do you know that, Lord? Look at their actions. They'll say one thing and they'll do another. God's word says he loves us. It wouldn't be enough, however, if that was all the evidence that we had. He shows he loves us. Hereby perceive we the love of God, not because he said it. He did it. He laid down his life for us. No marriage would last if the only evidence of love was in words. Well, how do you know your husband loves you? Well, he tells me all the time. But then he goes out and cheats on me. And he beats me. And he doesn't buy me the things that I need. And he doesn't take care of me. But I'm sure he loves me because he says it every single night. No, that's not love. Love indeed. Love in action. The next one is even harder. Not only are we to love indeed, but also in truth. First of all, you need to make sure your love is sincere. Romans 12, 9 says, let love be without dissimulation. Dissimulation is concealment and hypocrisy. Also, Loving in truth can be very, very difficult. Because loving in truth is what leads a parent to spank a child for wrongdoing. 
to discipline a child for not doing the right thing. Now, we're taught today, oh, if you love, you won't say no. If you love, you won't spank. If you love and your child does their homework and it's wrong, you're not going to say it's wrong. I remember when I was a teenager and there was this big movement to get away, to go away from red, the red pins and red markings on our papers, which I would get a lot of those. I was all for it at the time. So what are red markings? Well, <laughs> some of you will remember when you did schoolwork, if it was wrong, it got a red check next to it, meaning it was wrong. That wasn't very loving of our teachers to do that. From what I've been told, you don't mark a child's paper wrong. That's not love. And now that's been brought into the church. You don't preach against sin. That's not love. Where's the tolerance? You don't exercise church discipline. That's not love. Where's the tolerance? You don't take a stand against certain things. Where's the love? Well, I want to tell you, the Bible says we're to love in truth. And by the way, here's the standard for truth right here. And if this says, thou shalt not, then we got to preach, thou shalt not. And we got to ensure that people in the church are practicing the thou shalt nots and the thou shalts. We are to love in truth. Can I say a church that tolerates sin does not love at all? It's just another club. It's just another gathering. And it may be a very large gathering because people want to be tolerated. Hey, loving in truth is difficult. Being loved in truth. I was loved in truth the whole time that I grew up in my parents' home. And I can remember as a kid thinking, I wish my parents would quit loving in truth because my bottom hurts. And I'm tired of being grounded. And I'm sick of hearing, no, you can't do this. And no, you can't go there. And no, you can't be this. I mean, when I was a kid, I I wanted to be a dog. I wanted to eat dog food. I wanted to lap out of the bowl. Well, my parents let me do that part of it, but they wouldn't let me eat dog food. They wouldn't let me. You know, those dog biscuits looked pretty good. I really wanted one. Well, I find out that they're, they're not good for you at all. You know, my parents told me, you're not a dog, son. You're a little boy. <laughs> you're a human. I I didn't like it. I wasn't very loving to tell me I wasn't a dog. Dogs are cute. Human boys are ugly. But, you know, my parents loved me in truth. And I am so thankful today. Did I like it at the time? I hated it. But we need to love in truth. Man, the disservice we're doing to kids a five-year-old who says, I'm not a boy, I want to be a girl. And parents who don't love their kids enough to say, you got the wrong chromosome, son. Follow the science. You're a boy. You're not a girl. Um, man, we just need to be thankful for parents who will still love Not just in word and tongue, but in deed. Oh, and in truth. Even when the truth hurts. Truth can be the hardest way to love. And sometimes someone will come to church rejoicing over something. Pregnant teenage girl comes to church rejoicing over the fact she's going to have a child and I cannot rejoice with her. Because I know that, the, first of all, I know it's sin. 
That's the truth. Second of all, I know the statistics. And it's not very good for that poor little child. I'm sorry, I can't rejoice. I can't get excited about it. Because as a pastor, I got to preach. And I've got to love. Not in word and tongue. Word and tongue would simply be, oh, that's wonderful, dear. That's loving in word and tongue. But I got to love in deed and in truth. And I've got to say, you know, first of all, it's sin. Second of all, that child has all kinds of disadvantages already being born to a single teenage mom. It's not a thing to be excited about. And I hear all the time, preacher, it's a life. Yeah, unfortunately, it can be a doomed one. Now I know God is gracious and God is forgiving. But what it takes is mom facing the truth, uh, her parents facing the truth, a church that faces the truth, and you know what? Then that kid has a chance. But if we're going to love in word and tongue rather than in deed and in truth, we're condemning a whole lot of people to lives of misery because we're living a lie. We need to love as God did. Sacrificial, a brother's, a brother's keeper. We see here the observation, God laid down his life for us. It's a pretty simple explanation. We're not learning anything new here tonight. And then, of course, the expectation. It's not as easy as it's made out to be. Oh, anyone can love. No, love doesn't really come that naturally to us at all. Because love means sometimes forsaking self so that you can be a blessing to others. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. With every head bowed and every eye closed. Brotherly love isn't as easy as it sounds once you consider the expectations God has placed on it.